examples of people having to write in code to get their meaning across, philosophers like Spinoza, for example, permanently aware of how the heavy hand of the secular arm of the Inquisition might fall on them, had to conduct themselves. We have, I think, absolutely no right to forget that. Welcome to the Anti-Theist Atheist Podcast, the final episode of this season. Today we feature Christopher Hitchens' opening remarks in a debate versus Dr. Barry Brummett, recorded June 4, 2011, to address whether religion has been a positive force in culture. Hitch, still debating in his final year and months with us. Quickly before we get into the latest news, I'd just like to thank and commend Steve from the Atheist News channel on YouTube, from which the upcoming content arises. He does a consistent and wonderful religious and atheist news wrap-up every couple of weeks. Please subscribe to his YouTube channel and support him via Patreon at patreon.com slash atheistnews. Here is Steve from Atheist News. Welcome to Atheist News. Here's what's been happening. At Israel's Mount Marin, 45 people were killed in a stampede, as well as 150 people injured. Around 100,000 people were there celebrating the Lag Ba'or holiday, in spite of health officials discouraging such an event during a pandemic. The holiday is meant to celebrate Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, a 2nd century sage who was buried there. 45 people are now dead as part of this holiday. Officials allowed the ultra-Orthodox celebration to occur due to the country's high vaccination rate, but didn't foresee this. It's currently unknown what sparked the stampede to begin with. Mark Samsel, a member of the Kansas House of Representatives, also works as a substitute teacher at the Wellsville High School in Kansas. He was arrested on misdemeanor battery charges for physically attacking a student. While that was obviously the worst offense he committed, he made numerous other bizarre and hyper-religious overtures that day. He blamed suicidal tendencies on having same-sex parents, told a student that he's to follow his God's rules and take a Christian Bible, while also telling him, quote, See how it turns out if you keep denying God. He proceeded to chase down the student and knee him in the groin. After posting bail, Samsel claimed that the attack was planned by him and some of the students to send their families a message. The school district said that he won't be allowed back, though he remains a member of the state's House of Representatives. Religions split over different opinions regarding their faith. You'd think their God would make his message clearer. Anyways, those differences in opinions aren't limited to just religions, but now extend to Christian dating websites. Because as it turns out, Christian Mingle is just too broad-minded for the devout Christian. So now, a new website named Dominion Dating was unveiled for the Christian who rejects feminism of any kind and is set for launch on August 1st. The membership agreement includes language that states women are to be in glad submission to a husband, who is the head of family, church, governing, and society. 
Dominion Dating also rejects careers for women, and that marriage shouldn't be postponed by women for reasons such as an education. A pretty wild story out of Israel was made public last week, though none of the names involved were given. A rabbi who was educating Jewish kids and conducting circumcisions wasn't actually Jewish, but an undercover Christian spy who was attempting to convert Jews to Christianity. The New Jersey man disguised himself as Jewish and forged documents to utilize the law of return to emigrate him and his family to Israel, where the community supported them financially for about five years. Secretly, though, he was trying to get people in the Middle Eastern country to abandon their religion for his. No word on any formal criminal charges as of yet, but the deception involved will likely yield some kind of judicial punishment. A few weeks back, the Arkansas House of Representatives passed a bill that would allow public school science teachers to teach creationism as if it wasn't a complete load of bullshit. I avoided reporting on the story, because even in a state like Arkansas, I held out hope that someone would see reason before this absurd bill became a state law. Well... The bill reached the state Senate Education Committee, who would be the ones deciding if it would go to the Senate for a full vote. The vote was split 3-3, three to three, which means it won't go to the Senate for a vote, effectively killing the bill. The separation of church and state is maintained. Children won't be taught utter nonsense, and taxpayers won't be funding the eventual lawsuit that the state would clearly lose. A shofar is a ritual musical instrument usually made from a ram's horn. It sounds like this. Catchy. Pastor Johnny Enlow, during an appearance on the Grace and Glory show, said once before speaking at an event in Costa Rica, the bus he was on broke down. So he blew his shofar and the bus magically worked again and took them to their destination. Cool. Maybe now car repairs won't be so expensive once mechanics everywhere are given these horns to toot on. Just need Pastor Enlow to start showing everyone how he did this. Any day now. A state-by-state -state analysis of changing religious views in the U.S. was released, showing a massive uptick in the religious nun category from 2008 to 2020. Every single state showed an increase in the religiously unaffiliated, not necessarily atheists and agnostics, but those who don't identify with a specific religious belief. Oregon shot to the top of the pile, with almost 50% of the people classified as nothing in particular. The largest percentage increase since 2008 actually goes to New Mexico, which shot up over 25 percentage points in the religious nuns. The state with the smallest amount of religious nuns, Louisiana, still has about 25% of its population identify as such, and the smallest increase since 2008 belongs to the state of Rhode Island. Imran Khan, Prime Minister of Pakistan, announced plans that would involve Muslim-majority countries to unite their efforts in getting anti-blasphemy laws enacted worldwide. 
Khan said that if all of these countries initiated boycotts of other countries that allow free speech, then they could stop the West from, quote, hurting the feelings of Muslims. Critics of this plan point out how absurd it is, and that Khan is just trying to increase his popularity within Pakistan itself. Not to mention half of their exports are sold to members of the European Union, so if they boycott, and are boycotted right back, then their economy would be devastated. And how is Pakistan's blasphemy law going? Well, last month, two nurses were arrested for taking a sticker off of a wall cabinet. A sticker contained a prayer for the Islamic prophet Muhammad, and the two nurses are Catholic. So after word spread, someone attacked them with a knife, trying to kill them. So the police arrested the nurses for blasphemy. Representatives for the two women told the media that the sticker in question was old and already halfway torn off, and they were just attempting to clean the walls and furniture, not even realizing the religious significance of a sticker. Courtney Wilson and Shanita Jones planned their wedding ceremony to take place a few weeks back, a glorious celebration of their love and commitment to each other. They even planned to have it at Wilson's estate, which is a mansion worth $5.7 million in Florida. Except, when the wedding guests arrived, the owner of the mansion was like, Huh? Apparently, Wilson had asked months ago if he could use the property for free as a wedding venue, and the response was, No. And they decided to have the wedding there anyway, saying it was their God's message that they get to do that. The owner eventually called 911 after they started harassing him for trying to convince everyone to leave his property that they were trespassing. The police led the wedding guests away without incident. T. Elliot Welch, lead pastor of the First Baptist Church in Stanleyville, North Carolina, quit his job after being arrested on charges related to possessing and distributing child pornography. The sheriff's office had received a tip about the pastor uploading the files, and after executing a search warrant, discovered the files on his personal devices. Welch's court date is set for May 13th. 71-year-old pastor John Sherwood of London was arrested under the United Kingdom's Public Order Act after he had started giving a sermon in a public setting. This sermon received numerous complaints from passerbys for being homophobic, which led to the police intervening. Sherwood claimed he was treated shamefully, and that he was just preaching his Christian faith. Which, to be fair, is homophobic. But one caller who reported him to police said he was saying abusive and discriminatory names at gay people, which is certainly more than the usual Christian sermon. In 2015, the city council in Oviedo, Florida, adopted a policy that only city staffers could give invocations, this was meant to ensure that only Christian invocations would be given, because if they opened it up to non-city officials, then every faith and those of no faith would get equal opportunities to deliver the invocation. Numerous times in the past several years, they violated this policy to allow only Christian pastors to give the invocation instead. So this past week, they finally had to allow David Williamson of the Central Florida Free Thought Society to give his non-religious invocation to avoid a lawsuit for violating the separation of church and state. And he gave a great secular invocation. 
only for council member Judith Dolores Smith to give an impromptu, wildly inappropriate Christian invocation, in a bizarre attempt at overriding the non-religious invocation. Mayor Megan Sladek reminded the council later in the meeting that the invocation speakers need to be respected and treated equally. In Polk County, Florida, the Board of County Commissioners' invocation was delivered by Sarah Ray, co-founder of the Atheist Community of Polk County. After she delivered her non-religious invocation, the agenda stated that the Pledge of Allegiance was next. But instead, Chairman Rick Wilson gave an impromptu, wildly religious invocation and an attempt at overriding the secular one that Ray had just given. That's right, it happened again, also in Florida, in almost exactly the same way. Rabbi Yosef Benita, who teaches at the South Florida Chabad Lubavitch School in Miami, Florida, was arrested and charged with sexually abusing a child. The 10-year-old victim was being tutored by the rabbi, who later told his father about the abuse after it happened. A second victim has come forward since Benita's arrest, and he was denied bond. Last year, authorities raided the Genesis II Church of Health and Healing for selling a miracle cure that contained bleach. All of the confiscated bottles of Miracle Mineral Solution and its ingredients were ordered to be destroyed, its websites taken down, and three members of the Grennan family were charged. A new indictment was made last week by authorities because in spite of all of this, They've continued selling the Miracle Mineral Solution since their arrest last year, have threatened the judge presiding over their case, and have also threatened a Waco-style event should authorities try to shut them down again. The Grennan family members face life imprisonment if they are eventually convicted. Michael Bryce Jr., worship director at the Menlo Church in Mountain View, California, was suspended indefinitely two months back, but it wasn't publicly said why. The reason was made public this past week, as a victim told the church that a few years back when he was a young teenager, Bryce had solicited nude photographs from him. The church contacted authorities, who have since decided not to press charges because they can't confirm the victim's age at the time of the alleged crime, nor if the crime occurred in their jurisdiction. But Menlo Church has decided to officially fire the worship director and promise that a forensic specialist will be examining the computer he used at work. Last year, we reported on Reverend James Altman, the Catholic priest in Wisconsin who said in a video that climate change isn't real and that Catholics can't be Democrats. The church told the public that they'd be working with the priest to essentially tone down the crazy talk. It didn't work. New footage released online shows his church posting flyers claiming that the coronavirus vaccine alters the genetic material of people who receive it, and that prayer is the best medicine. Also released was footage of his packed church where he hand-fed communion into people's mouths, another bad practice during a pandemic. Reverend Altman's actions fly in the face of their leader, Pope Francis, who supports COVID-19-related restrictions and encourages everyone to get vaccinated. The Diocese of La Crosse said that they'd have a talk with their priests once more. Reverend Arthur Pulowski, pastor of the Fortress of Adulam Church in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, got mainstream news attention for throwing health officials and police out of his church 
for investigating obvious pandemic-related restrictions during Passover and Easter services. Now, a warrant gives the health officials and police authorization to use force to enter the church, and if Pulowski interferes in any way, he can be arrested. Let's see if his bravado holds up now that they have permission to arrest him if needed. Thank you, Steve. Again, you'll find Steve by searching Atheist News on YouTube. And if you want to hear more Atheist News, please consider donating to Steve's Patreon at patreon.com slash atheistnews. Up next is the last audio I have of Christopher Hitchens in his debates. I've attempted to share with you all on this podcast all of his opening remarks in religious debates. I may have missed a few. It's important to keep his works alive in whatever format we can. So I hope you've enjoyed it this season and have been invigorated by his remarkable thoughts and delivery. Without any further throat clearing, here is this week's featured opening speech from Christopher Hitchens. Let me see how I want to inaugurate this. Um, I think I'll start in, in Prague, if I may, a few years ago, where I went in order to meet uh, Vaslav Havel, Mikhail Baryshnikov, and um, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, all in the same room at the same time. It's a great story. I'll tell you all of it one day. Um, Prague is a spectacularly beautiful city, as you know. And I remember one evening walking across the Charles Bridge from the castle, made famous by Kafka, in the company of Mikhail Baryshnikov and a very beautiful young woman named Carol Blue, famous for her charms, and wishing that Larry Flint could be with us because otherwise I was so obviously going to be the most ugly feature of the landscape. And it was such a treat that I'd arranged to bring my family along and my wonderful, tough-minded, secular mother-in-law said to me the next day as we strolled through the gorgeousness of the city, so wise guy, how come that all this wonderful architecture and all this beauty and civilization was given to us by people who believed in God? Very fair question, very searchingly asked. And I thought, well, that's true um, that we owe that much. But it's also true that we couldn't have had that art and that architecture without the feudal system without monarchy and without theocracy. And who would want to say that it was necessary in order to appreciate culture that we should also revere uh, those progenitors of it? I think you'd have to, to factor in a couple of other things too, at least a couple of other things. Uh, Prague, the old town square, in fact, is the place where Jan Hus, the famous Protestant dissident, was uh, burned alive. The conflicts that were raging about what kind of faith we should be holding in those days led to the Thirty Years' War, the, the most devastating war Europe had then seen, led to tremendous destruction of culture and civilization in the name of God um, and because of faith, as well as, of course, the terrifying uh, loss of life. This has to be, I think, part of the uh, calculus as well. Um, St. Peter's Rome, for example, actually not my favorite building, I think it's rather oppressive, rather too much designed to show who's boss. It contains some wonderful works of art, but I think it's a bit vulgar in itself. That, by the way, suppose you like it more than I do, 
does it change your mind to know that it was built by the money raised from a very special sale of indulgences? The, the horrible and corrupt and superstitious system whereby people who could afford it could pay to have their, their time in purgatory or possibly in the inferno shortened. Uh, by the way, using the same units of time, by years, uh, it was assumed that those measurements would apply in the afterlife as well, in, in exchange for lavish donations to the holy of the church. In the end, that system proved so repulsive that even Christianity had to repudiate it. Now, how can we honestly settle the question? Could you do without St. Peter's if you knew that there were indulgences at the core of it as a foundation stone? Would you, if you knew that, still continue to appreciate it in the same way? Could you have skipped either or skipped both? I suggest these questions are, in fact, probably insoluble, but very well worth discussing if we can do it in a clarifying manner. And I'm going to have to put on my glasses now because I want to read, I don't trust myself to quote it properly, uh, a paragraph from T.S. Eliot's wonderful essay, Christianity and Culture. Um, just bear with me while I uh, read to you. It is in Christianity that our arts have developed. It is in Christianity that the laws of Europe, until recently, have been rooted. It is against the background of Christianity that all of our thought has significance. An individual European may not believe that the Christian faith is true, and yet what he says and makes and does will all spring out of his heritage of Christian culture and depend upon that culture for its meaning. I do not believe the culture of Europe could survive the complete disappearance of the Christian faith. And I am convinced of that, not merely because I'm a Christian myself, but as a student of social biology. If Christianity goes, the whole culture goes. I would say that was a pretty fair and eloquent statement of the opposing side to mine in this debate. Again, there's a sense in which that statement's obviously true. None of us can imagine our culture, our heritage, never mind just Europe, North America, and many other places too, without the influence of Christianity or some other monotheism. Um, that's true whether you accept its premises or admire them or not. But it was, it was becoming less true even as Eliot wrote. And it was, um, if, that, if what I said just there wasn't true, we, would, we wouldn't in fact have his most wonderful poem, The Wasteland, which, overrated as it is in many ways, brilliantly evokes the, the despair and fear and uh, trembling and angst that accompanied the terrible trauma inflicted on European civilization by the First World War. Now, if you look up um, Professor Dermot McCullough's new book, History of Christianity, written by a very sophisticated believer, the best book on the, on the general subject, I must say, I've ever read, highly recommend it. He says that it was actually in 1914 that the, that the idea of Christendom, Christian civilization, which could up till then be unironically used, people would speak of Christendom, as a, as a real thing, a living, breathing, cultural human entity, came to an end because the Christian emperors and kings of Europe went to war with each other and did so in such a barbaric way as to usher in a state of not just uh, total war, but of totalitarian principles in European and global politics. We live, in fact, in the wreckage of what Eliot proposes as true and enduring. And that, that concept of, uh, of Christendom um, is gone. We, we now use the words, the Muslim world, as if it meant something. It certainly does mean much more to many Muslims than it would do 
to say to to uh, refer to Christendom uh, beforehand. Um, Eliot's life, as a matter of fact, um, represents a, an attempt to grapple with this compromise. He solved the question of that crisis, the crisis of civilization um, of post-1918, by joining up in effect with a party, the Action Française at first, and then other groups of Europe that were nostalgic for monarchy, for feudalism, in part for theocracy, for an orderly, uh, organic society, um, his writing testifies to it in his uh, notorious lecture at the University of Virginia, After Strange Gods, he says probably a proper culture will just have to do without too many secular Jews. A very blunt statement, very offensive to many of his friends, but very sincerely meant. What he meant was our faith is becoming compatible with certain kinds of modernity, certain kinds of pluralism. Now I submit that a religion that has to make that confession in any sense at all, whether whether remorsefully or, or whether, uh, as he did, positively, has confessed that it has not, nothing more to contribute to the cultural argument, has confessed to its exhaustion. So that however true it may have been, that religion was a great contributor to music, uh, to painting, to architecture, um, we have to be aware of a couple of uh, qualifications and modifications to that. I, as a student of literature, would admit that it's very unlikely that the poetry of George Herbert, the devotional poetry, or the poetry and sonnets and um, sermons of John Donne could have been written by anyone who was insincere about their faith. I think it's incredibly unlikely. But I can't say that of the painters and artists who did the Declaration for Civilization, because we don't know what they really thought. All we can know for certain, excuse me when I take a sip of water, All we can know for certain is that if they didn't make a profession of faith, they wouldn't get the commission. Everybody knew what happened to those who doubted the faith and the examples of Benjamin Franklin, for example, or uh, James and John Stuart Mill, civilized members of the upper orders in stable and developed societies chose to conceal their own views of the matter because they thought it was too risky. If, if, if they thought that, imagine what it was like in less advanced or more tyrannical countries. And the examples of people having to write in code to get their meaning across, philosophers like Spinoza, for example, permanently aware of how the heavy hand of the secular arm of the Inquisition might fall on them, had to conduct themselves. We have, I think, absolutely no right to forget that, to forget the fact that only one copy of Lucretius's De Rerum Naturum, one of the great contributions to culture and civilization ever made, as well as the first discovery of the atomic theory, very nearly didn't survive the Christian centuries at all. Only one copy, in fact, did make it, helped to inspire people like Galileo, whose fate, of course, stood as a permanent reminder to people of what would happen to them if they, uh, if they didn't appear to be uh, sufficiently Devout. So I think if I haven't made that point by now, I'll have failed to make it if I elaborate any further. I think I just want to say, and this should probably be in conclusion, I don't have a stopwatch either, is that we are now in the position that uh, I occupy, try to occupy, in my little book about the Parthenon. Uh, the Parthenon is a building 
without which I could not do. I don't know about any of you, but if, if you try and imagine European civilization without that, as Eliot invites us to imagine European civilization without monotheism, it's pretty hard to do. A tremendous work and involving largely, this, with some slavery, but not much, largely the work of free citizens, artists and artisans in Athens. Inspired quite clearly by, by, by faith, nobody knows anything about that religion anymore, really. Certainly nobody bothers with those gods, nobody practices the Eleusinian mysteries. That's all gone. But the tremendous contribution made by it stays with us. So what I think we have to be talking about, Professor Bromwich and I, among other things, is one of my favorite words, Hegel's word, Aufhebung, um, transcendence. How do we, as a civilization and a culture, retain what is of value and of beauty and of instruction in the contributions gifted to us by the past from the years and decades and uh, centuries of faith? while discarding, perfect timing, while discarding the, the superstition, the, the theocracy, the censorship, the torture, the intimidation, that work at just as necessary to that system and just as much part of its legacy to us. Um, thank you very much. To finish up this season of the Anti-Theist Atheist podcast, I'd like to close it off with a couple of minutes of Hitch's closing remarks from the 2010 William Dembski debate, not previously aired on this channel. Thanks for listening. To defend myself, it seems to me, on these two uh, matters. I'll close on the implied question that Bill asked me earlier. Why don't you accept this wonderful offer? <clears throat> Why wouldn't you like to meet Shakespeare, for example? I mean, I don't know if you really think that when you die you can be corporeally reassembled and have conversations with authors from previous epochs. It's not necessary that you believe that in Christian theology, and I have to say it sounds like a complete fairy tale to me. The only reason I want to meet Shakespeare, or might even want to, is because I can meet him any time, because he is immortal in the works he's left behind. If you've read those, meeting the author would almost certainly be a disappointment. But when Socrates was sentenced to death, for his philosophical investigations and for blasphemy, for challenging the gods of the city, and he accepted his death. He did say, well, if we are lucky, perhaps I'll be able to hold conversation with other great thinkers and philosophers and doubters too. In other words, that the discussion about what is good, what is beautiful, what is noble, what is pure and what is true could always go on. Why is that important? Why would I like to do that? Because that's the only conversation worth having. And whether it goes on or not after I die, I don't know. But I do know that it's the conversation I want to have while I'm still alive. Which means that to me, the offer of certainty, the offer of complete security, the offer of an impermeable faith that can't give way, is an offer of something not worth having. I want to live my life taking the risk all the time that I don't know anything like enough yet, that I haven't understood enough, that I can't know enough, that I'm always hungrily operating on the, on the margins of, of a potentially great harvest of future knowledge and wisdom. I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'd urge you to look at those of you who tell you, those people who tell you at your age that you're dead till you believe as they do. What a terrible thing to be telling to children. And that you can only live...
and that you can only live by accepting an absolute authority. Don't think of that as a gift. Think of it as a, think of it as a poison chalice. Push it aside, however tempting it is. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Thank you.